Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. That I've never passed a church like Westside, lest, unless you think I meant anything negative by that, which I did not. I want to just amplify on that statement just a little bit. Uh, this indeed is a unique body. I became a Christian. The Lord brought me to the kingdom when I was six years old. So that means I've been a Christian for 38 years and have been involved in churches growing up and in college and uh, in seminary and since seminary. Pastored, as you know, three churches. was an associate pastor of a church as well. And been in ministry 20 years, and in all that time, uh, Westside is indeed unique. And I want to speak about some of the uniqueness before I get into the message, so you'll realize uh, the positive note that I meant that. And all my ministry, as you've heard me say before, I've never had a group of deacons like the men at Westside. Uh, their heart for the Lord and their commitment to walk with the Lord and to obey His Word uh, is greater than any body of deacons I've ever worked with. Now, we've always, in every church, had a few deacons who had hearts for the Lord. But then there's always been some that I just wasn't quite sure where their hearts were. It seemed like it was more for tradition and more for uh, worldly thinking than it was for the spiritual things. But at Westside... There has been that uh, total absence of any worldly-mindedness among the deacon brothers. And God has given us men uh, whose hearts are attuned to Him and to His Word. And that's unique. I've never pastored a church that had the freedom and worship that we have at Westside. When I was a uh, Christian in high school, uh, a group of guys used to get together with me once a week, and we would spend time in prayer and in worship. One of the guys played the piano, and we would worship. Uh, admittedly, we worshiped around Southern gospel music, but we entered into some <laughs> tremendous worship times. Uh, but I never got to experience those times in any of the churches I pastored uh, until I came to Westside. So there's a uniqueness in the freedom of worship that I appreciate here. I've never pastored a church that had more of a mind for missions. Although I have pastored uh, some strong mission-minded churches, but their focus was limited to Southern Baptist missions, by and large. And Westside's focus, as you know, is worldwide and global and transcends denominational lines. And I have often, in my earlier pastorates, desired to see such freedom. And praise the Lord that at Westside, we have that freedom. I've never pastored a church that had such a depth of prayer and praying people and commitments to prayer as I have seen at Westside. And I have in previous churches had times to call the men to pray and men have shown up to pray. Uh, but the depth of the prayers uh, in those times were nothing compared to the depth of prayers that we have at Westside uh, in our deacons meeting and men's prayers and committee meetings and just Wednesday night prayer times. Uh, I've never experienced that in any other church. Uh, Westside is more of a family 
than any church I have pastored. Uh, it, indeed, the longer I'm here, the more I sense the family aspect of this church. Uh, and just as in any family, you have different types of people. You have different types of people at Westside. But yet, in a family, you love people and you accept them because they're family, right? Even though they may be different, even though they may rub you a little bit the wrong way, they're family. So you love them, you accept them. And I see that at Westside. I think there's a willingness to accept and love people even though they may be different than you are. But there's that openness and that love and that sense of fellowship, a deeper sense of fellowship than in any church I've been in. Such a deep sense of fellowship, I think it scares some people off when they come and visit the church and are not accustomed to such an openness and a willingness to share and be vulnerable among other people. And I think they're not ready for that and it scares some people off. But never experienced that in any other church. Never experienced such a deep moving of God's Spirit as I have seen at Westside in the last four years that I've been here. There's always been times in all the churches where I've seen God's Spirit at work, but nothing to the extent, the intensity, and the depth that I've seen God working since I've been at Westside. And I think this is true for any of the churches I've been involved in. I've not seen the working, the depth of working of God's Spirit at Westside. And some of you that have been involved in other churches uh, will bear testimony to these same truths that I'm experiencing. There is a deeper hunger for the things of God and for God among many and most of the members at Westside than what I've experienced in other churches. Again, always, there are a few in every church that God seems to call out to really hunger and seek for Him. I call those the remnant. But at Westside, that remnant is much larger, a much greater percentage of the body than in any church I've been involved with. I've seen a deeper movement of God's Spirit among the women in the women's ministry here at Westside with WOW than in any church that I have pastored. And there's been more of a concerted effort among the women of the church to to strengthen the homes and to, to minister to the women so that the homes can be strengthened and God's design for the home brought about. The men's ministry at Westside has been more responsive than in any church I've pastored. And I've seen more of a work in the lives of men with accountability groups and, and study groups and, and other things going on. Uh, the staff relations is as good here as any church I've ever pastored. In fact, probably better uh, when you consider all the staff and how the staff relate to each other and the staff's desire and heart for the Lord. And so I can stand before you and say that I know of no other church uh, that I had rather be pastoring today than Westside Baptist Church. That I know God has brought me here and God has planted me here. And there's a love in my heart for you folks. And uh, my family and I enjoy serving God here. It's been a great time of spiritual growth. There have been struggles, but every church has struggles. If you look for that perfect church, you'll never find it. Just like if you look for that perfect mate, you'll never find her or him. There's no such creation. If you look for that perfect job, you'll never find it. There's no such thing. There's going to be difficulties and struggles in everything in life. So the sooner we learn to quit looking for that perfect situation, the better we'll be. And knowing that no church is perfect, uh, I have experienced in my life uh, a walk and a depth of walk with the Lord, a closeness to Him these past four years that has come because of some of those struggles. 
And also, uh, it's been a time of growth that I have thanked the Lord for and thank you for. So, uh, just so you wouldn't take anything as being negative. And we have fun together, and I like to joke with you folks. And, uh, and that's another thing. It's a better sense of humor here. And there's more spiritual... <coughs> you know, some churches, they don't know how to take my humor exactly. And... But you folks do. And there's a, a, a spiritual life, a spiritual energy here that I have not seen in other churches that I pastor. So anyway, I praise the Lord that we're here. We've been here for four years, and our commitment is to stay here as long as God wants us to stay. That's our heart's desire, to be obedient to Him. Now, I don't know how long that'll be. It may be longer than some of you would like. It may be shorter than some of you would like. I don't know. That generally happens. But uh, I've always said, Lord, please don't let me stay too long. I don't want to stay so long that they want me to go. You know? uh, you've got a period of time you stay in a church, and the people say, man, you know, we're glad he's here. And then you go through a period of time, they say, well, he's our pastor, and he's here, and that's okay. And then if you don't watch it, you go through a period of time where they say, man, when is he going to leave? I mean, he's been here long enough. So uh, I pray the Lord will not allow that time to come before he moves us on. But Galatians 6, verses 6 through 10. Lynn, give me a little bit more volume. <clears throat> How is your garden coming along? This is the time of year that many people plant their garden. In fact, I know some people that Good Friday is the only day to plant that garden. And you plant it on Good Friday. Some of the rest of you know people like that too, don't you? Now let me tell you, it's nothing magical about Good Friday. I have planted on Good Friday, and I still can't grow anything. <laughs> I mean, I can't even grow a tomato, one tomato plant in a... In a I do not have a physical green thumb. Now, I think God's given me a spiritual green thumb, but I cannot grow stuff. I have, when I was down in Phoenix City, my neighbor uh, was, grew up on the farm, and he used to uh, plant in the back of his yard, and so he even tilled me up a spot in my yard uh, as a pastorium yard to plant, and I planted bell peppers and banana peppers and watermelons and corn and, and uh, squash and cucumbers. and I mean, I did all that stuff. Only thing grew were the cucumbers. Now they did grow. Cucumbers will grow anywhere they want to. And I got some watermelons about that big. And I did get a few banana peppers. But anyway, I decided it's not worth it. You know, it was a lot cheaper for me to go to the store and buy than it would be for me to try my tried to fertilize and insecticide and all the other sides and everything. But anyway, Good Friday is a time many people like to plant that garden. And so I want to ask you how your garden's coming along. Now you may say, Preacher, I'm not planting a garden. I hadn't planted a garden in years, or so I've never planted a garden. And that's where you're mistaken. You are planting a garden. Every one of us is planting a garden all the time. Now not a physical garden, but a spiritual garden. Every one of us is planting a spiritual garden, and we have been planting that garden for years. Now the deception that we're talking about this morning is in the area of our spiritual garden. Galatians 6, beginning with verse 6. And let the one who has taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, 
This he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap reap eternal life. And let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Our deception this morning is simply this. I can sin and not experience any negative consequences. This deception revolves around the delusion that my actions will not have future consequences. That what I do today does not affect tomorrow. That the here and now is all that matters. This deception thinks that the present is not inseparably linked to the future. This deception is very nearsighted. And because of that, this deception is especially dangerous for those who are young, those who are in high school, those who are in college, those who are in their 20s and 30s. Now, all of us are susceptible to this deception, but particularly youth are susceptible to this. That some way what I do today does not affect tomorrow. That I can sow my wild oats today and then I'll become a Christian later and everything will be all right. How many times in college did I talk to other people about their relationship with the Lord and becoming a Christian and they say something to that effect? Well, I got plenty of time to become a Christian. I just want to live right now. Man, I want to sow my wild oats. And then I'll become a Christian later and everything will be all right. This deception says I can live like I want to today and tomorrow I'll change and everything will be well. Now this delusion is more common than you might think. Our government thinks for some reason that we can go more and more in debt and someday payday is not going to come. That we can continue to increase the national debt without having to suffer future tragic consequences. They can just keep going this way. Some are beginning to wake up, at least say that they're waking up to this truth, but by the way they're conducting themselves, it makes you wonder. That we as a nation think we can kill over one million preborn children every year and not suffer negative consequences because of it down the road? I was talking to an army recruiter who said that he had seen a tr- drastic drop in the number of potential recruits for the armed forces since the abortion issue has gone over the period of 18, 19 years. He's seen a tremendous drop. How can you take out 30 or 40 million people out of the American population and not affect the workforce? And that's what's happened since 1973. 36 plus million people who would be in America living, we trust most productive citizens, are taken out of the sea. They're already telling us that there's no way Social Security can last when those of us my age get ready to draw it because the number of people in the workforce will be so small compared to the number of people drawing from the pool. 
For some reason, we think we can do this and not experience future consequences. This deception says, I plan to get married someday and have a family. But what's the harm in me doing drugs now? Marriage is years away. Not realizing that some drugs can affect us years after we take them. Some drugs can cause birth defects years later. Some drugs can cause sterility. Or the deception says, well, if I want to be promiscuous before I get married, so what? I'll be faithful to my wife after I get married and everything will be all right. It will not affect my marriage. This deception separates present circumstances from future consequences. This deception can also revolve around the notion that God's forgiveness removes all temporal consequences. Well, God's forgiven me, so everything's okay. Now, God's forgiveness does remove eternal consequences from our sin. But His forgiveness does not remove temporal consequences from our sin. We still have to face the consequences of our actions. This deception says, well, I know it's a sin, but God will forgive me and everything will be all right. Or the thinking is God's forgiveness removes all the negative consequences. I know it's a sin for me as a Christian to marry an unbeliever, but I love him so much. I know God will forgive me and therefore everything will turn out all right. I know it's a sin for me to cheat on my income tax. But man, if I don't cheat, I just cannot pay my tax liability. And after all, I'm a Christian. God will forgive me. I know it's wrong to cheat on this exam, but nobody will know and God will forgive me. Tom Phillips, the director of Atlanta Care, has shared with me that he has seen young girls reason this way. I know it's a sin to have an abortion. But it would be tremendously difficult on my parents and on me if I bring this baby to term. And after all, God will forgive me. And everything will be okay. This deception seeks to mock God. Now the word mock at its root in the Greek is the word nose. It means to turn one's nose up at, to sneer. To treat with contempt or to ridicule. But you say, I would never turn my nose up at God. I'd never sneer at God. I'd never mock God. But in fact, if we're entrapped by this deception, that's exactly what we're doing. If we think we can outwit God by sowing one kind of seed and reap something else, we're mocking God. If we think we can sin and break God's word and disobey Him and get by with it, we're mocking God. If we think we can ignore God's principles and everything will still turn out good for me, we're seeking to mock God. Now that's the deception. What is the truth? Truth number one, verse seven. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. That's the first truth. You will not mock God. No one, no one can outwit outwit God by sinning and being clever enough to escape the consequences. Now listen to that, young people. We cannot 
disregard God's Word and not suffer ill effects. We cannot break the laws of God and escape unharmed. We cannot turn our nose up at God, violate the life principles of His Word, and experience no negative consequences. You cannot do it. The wisest man who ever lived, apart from Jesus Christ Himself, Solomon, could not be wise enough to sin and outwit God and escape the negative consequences. Turn over to 1 Kings chapter 11. Hold your place in Galatians. 1 Kings chapter 11. If the wisest man in the world could not mock God by sinning and escaping the consequences, what makes you think you can? 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1 and following. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, neither shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away from, away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. Now God clearly said, You shall not associate with these heathens. They will turn your hearts after their gods. Solomon thought he was wise enough to mock God, disobey His word, and love these foreign women and not be affected by it. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For it came about when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after their gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Astaroth the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Melchon the detestable idol of the Ammonites. And Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemosh the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Amnon. Now this is the same guy that built the temple for God in Jerusalem. He goes and builds high places for the altars of these pagan idols. Verse 8. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their God. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And he commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, 
I will not tear away all of the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Solomon was not wise enough to be able to turn away from God, sin, and not suffer the consequences. The strongest man who ever lived, Samson, was not strong enough to be able to disobey the word of God and marry the heathen Delilah and not suffer the consequences of his actions. You cannot mock God. Truth two. What we do reap, we do reap what we sow. Again, Galatians chapter 6 verse 7. Whatever a man sows, this he shall reap. God is not mocked because God has placed within the fabric of this creation this immutable law, the principle that whatever we sow, that we shall reap. Now we recognize it in the physical world. We don't have no problem recognizing it. Ask a four-year-old child, if I plant this kernel of corn, what will grow? Not an apple tree, but a corn stalk. If I plant this apple seed, what will grow? Not an orange tree, an apple tree. And how many times will an apple tree grow when you plant an apple seed rather than some other kind of tree? 99% of the time? You know the answer. 100% of the time God has woven it into the fabric of the universe that whatever a man sows, that shall he reap. And it's just as true in the spiritual realm as it is in the physical realm. We must see our actions as seeds that are sown in the garden of life. And whatever we sow is what we're going to harvest. You cannot sow lying and expect to reap truthfulness. You cannot sow hatefulness and expect to harvest love. That girl who had the abortion will suffer the ill consequences even though she can be forgiven. But there will be emotional scars. There will be mental anguish. Maybe even physical consequences that she'll have to go through. That man who sows the seeds of promiscuity before marriage will suffer the consequences of that in his married life. He cannot separate his earlier years from his years in his married life. Those seeds will come to harvest someday. That man who cheats on his income tax will suffer the ill effects of those seeds. How? I don't know. When? I don't know. But I know he will because God is not mocked. What a man sows, that shall he reap. The boy who indulges in pornography in high school will suffer the consequences of that later in his life. Those seeds will come to fruition because we do reap what we sow. Second truth, we reap later than we sow. Now again, we find this in the physical world. Nobody expects to sow a seed today and go out and have a full-grown apple tree with apples on it the next day. You don't even expect to throw out a seed and, and get a return on it in a week. Unless it's some of that quick growing grass that you can throw out there and see some results. But we recognize there's a time element between the sowing and the reaping. The same thing is true in the spiritual world. 
It may be years before those seeds mature and bear fruit. That's why people think they can get by with their sin. Well, nothing bad happened to me. I got by with my sin. Wrong. The ill effects of that sin will come into fruition someday, just later. There will be payday someday. To the parent who fails to raise their child by God's principles, fails to teach them to honor and obey them, may think, well, my kid acts fine. Man, you know, we fail to, to teach them these things, but they're just naturally good. They just got a good temperament. But those seeds may come to harvest in those grandchildren. They will come. Because what a man sows, that shall he reap. Not only do we sow what we reap, not only do we uh, reap what we sow, not only do we reap later than we sow, but we also reap more than we sow. You plant a kernel of corn, does just one kernel come up? No. Hundreds, maybe thousands of kernels will come from that one kernel of corn. Plant a watermelon seed, and hundreds of watermelon seeds will come from that one seed because we reap more than we sow. Sow a little dishonesty and reap much dishonesty. Sow a little immorality, reap much immorality. Sow a little gossip, reap much gossip. Sow a little hatred, reap much hatred. Probably the clearest example in all the scripture of this principle of sowing and reaping is David himself. Turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. It is so clearly set forth in God's word that we should never question this principle and the truth of it. David, a man after God's own heart, could not sin and not experience the consequences of it. And parents, the sooner we teach our children there are consequences to their behavior, the better it will be. Now we, some by nature, just want to insulate your children from the consequences of their bad behavior. They don't finish that paper in time, so mom goes and types it for them the night before it's due, rather than letting them face the tune of not having it done. You're doing them a disservice if you're giving them the impression that they don't have to face the consequences of their sinful, irresponsible behavior. David. You remember the story of David and Bathsheba. David was not out to war as he should have been. He was at home in the palace. He went out one evening. He looked across the palace grounds and Bathsheba was out in her home taking a bath. David saw her. He lusted for her. He brought her into his palace. He committed adultery with her. She got pregnant. He knew, man, I've got to do something to cover this up. Her husband was at war. So his thoughts, I've got to bring her, her husband Uriah back home. He comes back home after he's been out to war. They spend the night together. Then when she turns up pregnant, he'll think he's the dad, right? So he brings Uriah back home from war. But Uriah doesn't go in and spend the night with his wife. Uriah has a tremendous sense of loyalty to his troops. And you know what he says? He says, can I go in and spend the night with my wife when my fellow soldiers are out on the battlefield giving their life? So he doesn't go in. Now David's got to do something else. Uh-oh, now I've got to cover this thing up. 
Alright, this is what I'll do. I'll send a message back with him to his commanding officer to engage him in war and then pull everybody back and leave Uriah out by himself. Surely he'll be killed then and nobody will know he's not the father. And so David, a man after God's own heart, fell into the gross sin of lying and adultery and murder and does that. He thinks he gets by with it, but you know, he does not because God saw it and God informed the prophet Nathan about it and Nathan confronts David with his sin. But I want you to see the seeds that David sowed in verse 9. Why have you despised, Nathan's talking to David, why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. So the first sword that his first seed that David sowed was the seed of death, the sword. He had Uriah killed. And have taken his wife to be your wife. So he violated the sanctity of the one flesh marriage relationship. That's the second seed that he sowed. The third seed that he sowed is he brought evil to Uriah's household. So he sowed the seed of death, the seed of evil to Uriah's household, and he sowed the seed of the violation of the sanctity of the one marriage, one flesh marriage relationship. And have killed him with the sword of the sins of Amnon. Now that's what he sowed. Now Nathan says, this is what you're going to reap. Nathan realized the principle. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. In other words, you sowed the seed of death, David, and murder, that seed is going to come to harvest in your house. Did that seed come to harvest? It came later, and it came more. You see, David had a son named Amnon, and he also had a daughter named Tamar. Amnon and Tamar were half-brothers and sister. Half-brother and sister. And Amnon lusted after his half-sister Tamar and he tricked her into coming into his bedroom and he raped her. Now because of that, Tamar's brother Absalom became furious and he went and killed Amnon, David's son. The sword did not depart from his house. Later, Absalom himself was killed. And later on, even after David's death, the seeds were continuing to bear fruit, the harvest. Because his son Solomon killed his half-brother, Adonijah. And so David reaped what he sowed. He reaped it later than he sowed, and he reaped more than he sowed. The second seed that he sowed, verse 10. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. He brought evil on Uriah's household, and evil would come upon his household. What fruit came from those seeds? Well, I've already mentioned the rape of of his daughter by her half-brother. Add to that the rebellion of Absalom against David, his own father, who desired to, to throw his father off the throne and to take over the kingdom. Imagine the heartache of a father when a son 
so despises him and hates him that he rebels against him and seeks to run him out of the country? Add to that the trouble in the home that when David was on his deathbed, one of his sons, Adonijah, tried to perform a coup against his father and declare himself to be king of Israel. While David was on his deathbed and David had made known his wishes that Solomon succeed him, Adonijah gathered many of the leaders of the nation of Israel through a party and proclaimed himself to be the new king. And as a result of that, Solomon killed Adonijah a few months later. So yes, division in his own house. Evil would come into his own house. He reaped what he sowed, he reaped it later, and he reaped more than he sowed. The third thing that he sowed. He says, I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. David sowed the seed of violating the sanctity of the marriage relationship. And that seed would bear fruit and his wives would be violated and the sanctity of that relationship violated before all the nation of Israel. And that came about years later when his son Absalom drove David out of Jerusalem and David had to flee the country for his life because Absalom desired to take over the kingdom. And one of Absalom's advisors said, there are some people that are still on the fence. They don't know whether to throw in their hat with you are with David. They think that you and David might make up, and if they throw their hat in with you, then they're going to be in trouble when you and David get back together. You've got to do something to let them know that there's never going to be a, a reconciliation between you and your father David, and this is what you need to do. You need to go in and take the concubines that he has left behind to take care of the palace. You need to go and pitch your tent on the top of the palace wall so everyone can see, and you need to go in to those concubines and violate them. And this will make everybody know that you're serious about this rebellion. And so the seed that, were sown, that was sown by David in the violation of that sanctity of the relationship with Bathsheba was multiplied many times over as Absalom, his son, violated that relationship with those concubines, which again, in some way, was seen as a type of marriage sacred relationship. So David reaped what he sowed, he reaped it later, and he reaped more than he sowed. Now back to Galatians chapter 6. What kind of seeds are you sowing? Verse 8 said, For the one who sows to his own flesh shall reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now turn to Galatians chapter 5. I want to show you the seeds of the flesh. And you ask yourself, what kind of seeds am I sowing? Now this saying can work for you or it can work against you. This principle can work for you if you're sowing good seed. I mean, if you're sowing the right kind of seeds, it is great. Because that means you're going to reap what you sow. And you're going to reap more than you sow. And you're going to reap later than you sow. But you're going to reap. And that's why it says don't grow weary in well-doing. There's always that time between the planting and the harvest. Don't get weary during that time. 
Continue to plant those good seeds and God's going to bring them to fruition. You continue to instill those godly principles in your children. You continue to be the, seek to be the mother and father God's called you to be. You continue to plant those seeds of faithfulness and they are going to bring fruition someday. You just hang in there. Don't give up. Don't quit. You continue to be that loving husband God's called you to be. You continue to plant those seeds of love. And it is going to come someday, the harvest. Hang in there. Don't give up. Don't grow weary. You continue to be that submissive wife God's called you to be. And God's going to work. He's going to bring good fruit from those seeds. But are you sowing the seeds of the flesh? Look at verse 19. For the deeds of the flesh are evident. If you're doing any of these, you're sowing those seeds. Immorality. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things, that is, who live continually, habitually this way, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Are you sowing any of those seeds? Maybe you are reaping, even as we speak today, some of the consequences of seeds you sowed like this years ago. But maybe you're sowing good seeds. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness, and self-control. We need to be sowing those kind of seeds. And as we sow, we can be confident that we shall reap. You say, well, preacher, I've sowed some seeds in the past. What can I do? Well, surely ask God's forgiveness if you haven't done already. And when those seeds begin to bear fruit you can just come before the Lord and say God I know these are the consequences of my actions in the past and I'm looking to you for the grace to be able to glorify Christ in these consequences I know that I'm simply reaping what I've sown and I'm man or woman enough to live with those trusting your grace to enable me to do so and to bring glory to you somehow, some way through this, to bring glory to you. To draw closer to you for the strength I need to endure these consequences. But I wish I could say, hey, man, he'll just take them away. He'll just remove them. And what you did back when you were 19 and 20, 21, 22, you can escape totally the consequences even now. But I can't say that because the principle is built into creation. Now probably all of us are living with something today. Don't we wish we'd put this into practice years ago? That's why I say youth are the most susceptible to this deception. We think when we're young, hey, it won't matter. We can do what we want. Who's looking ahead, right? Who's looking a year ahead, much less 20 years ahead when you're 19, when you're 18? But this morning, young people, listen to this truth. If we had time, adult after adult could come up here and bear testimony. Boy, I, it is so true. It is so true. But you're the place that you can sow good seed because those good seeds will also come to fruition. That's the grace. That's the hope. That's the joy.
Let's pray. Father, I pray that your Spirit has dealt with us and shown us if we're walking even under this deception now. There's some seeds that we're sowing that we think we won't have to face the consequences of. To those, Lord, that might be discouraged now because they've been sowing good seed and haven't seen the harvest yet, may they be encouraged to continue in their well-doing and not to grow weary. Father, to those that have sown bad seeds in the past and are reaping some of those seeds, may they be determined to sow more and more good seed that the good fruit could come up and perhaps even in some way choke out or cover up the bad fruit. May we be more and more determined to sow the seeds of the fruit of the Spirit and of genuine love and good deeds. In Jesus' name, amen. As we sing our hymn of response, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond today. Maybe God's leading you to become a part of His army here at Westside. We open the doors for you to come and be a part of this body. Maybe you just want to come and pray. Maybe you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Until you come to Christ and receive the forgiveness that comes through His cleansing blood, You're still under the eternal consequences of your sin.